call, call it a, a leap of faith, but how many saints could we point to that did that? Yes, all of them. All of them. All of them. They all did that. All right, uh, Hugh, let's, let's, let's get into the, our subject for today, the collective amnesia of Genesis, cause, consequences, and cure. You know, I tell my audience often when, I, when this subject comes up, as a matter of fact, you were the inspiration for a talk I gave in, in Lake Charles about four years ago when I talked about the, the beauty of the Catholic calendar. And, and I talked about, and, and I started with the calendar. I said, we're not going to have a calendar unless we have men. We don't, we, there's no need to keep time. Why do we need to keep time? And I quoted St. Augustine. And then I talked about, and let's start with the fact that as I go along here, understand Genesis is history. Genesis is not allegory. It's not metaphor. It's the word of God to a man who wrote it down. It's history as it happened. So, there is a collective amnesia. There's some cherry picking too about Genesis. Yes, yes. And what's very important to understand is this is nothing new. Collective amnesia about Genesis has been a problem for the people of God from the beginning. And you know, it's very interesting that when God gave the Ten Commandments, on tablets of stone written, as it says, with the finger of God. There is only one commandment where he commands us to remember something. Because really, most of the Ten Commandments are the natural law. We don't need to be told to remember to honor our parents. It's obvious right. they gave us life. We should honor them. But it, the third commandment is the one where right in the commandment, it says, remember to keep holy the Sabbath day. Why? Because in six days, the Lord created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all they contain and rested on the seventh day. And therefore, we are to work for six days and take that seventh day to honor God. That's his day. So you have a direct one-to-one -one correspondence between the six days and the seventh day of rest, whereby God made the seventh day holy at the beginning of the world. It didn't begin with Moses. It began at the very beginning of creation. And the one-to-one -one correspondence is to our rhythm of six days of work, and we give that seventh day to God. So our Heavenly Father being a perfect loving father he doesn't just tell us what to do he does it first like any good dad so he could have created the world in one second in 65 trillion years whatever he wanted to do <laughs> why did he choose to create the world in six 24-hour days because he was giving us the pattern that we have to follow if we want to lead a happy, healthy, holy life. And our whole liturgical rhythm in the church is based on how God chose to create the world for us in the beginning. But here's the problem. Whereas nature tells us to honor our parents and the natural law makes it clear that we shouldn't kill people, we shouldn't steal from people and all these things, there's nothing in nature that tells us that God created it all in six days. 
there are seven-day rhythms that are written into nature, but they're very subtle. They're not obvious. The solar year, the month, you could relate these things to the movements of the sun and the moon, but there's no obvious natural cycle of seven days. So the only way that any human beings can know the truth about how and over what period God created everything is from his revelation. And because it's not being reinforced by our everyday experience, we have to remember it. And we've got to hand on that remembrance to the next generation. Because if we don't, immediately we will substitute some invention of our own to substitute for what God revealed. And that always entails idolatry. We're going to substitute something for God to explain how everything came to be. And this has been a problem for God's people from the beginning. And you can see that especially in the thousand years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You have King Solomon marrying all these pagan wives right. who all practiced idolatry. They worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars. And these practices began to be taken up by God's people. And you can read in the historical books how there were these high places all through the Holy Land where God's people were worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And eventually it got so bad that right in the temple precincts, they were doing these things and they were practicing homosexuality and prostitution in connection with this false worship. And when King Josiah finally came on the scene, who was one of a handful of good kings in the whole history of the kings of Israel, he tried to clean house and finally get rid of all of this idolatry. And you know what it says in the word of God is that the high priest, Hilkiah, went into the temple of God in Jerusalem and he found Genesis. In other words, they had forgotten that Genesis even existed. He discovered it. And it says right in the word of God that he found the text of Genesis in the hand of Moses. In other words, either the original scroll that Moses wrote or a perfect copy of it. Because the Bible says very clearly that it was the law of Moses in the hand of Moses himself. Now think about that. We're talking about the people of God, the ones that God chose as those who would receive the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And yet his own people completely forgot Genesis. And what, did they, what were they doing? They were substituting all kinds of idolatry and false explanations for the origins of the universe. And they were associating 
homosexuality and sexual immorality with those idolatrous practices. It's nothing new. And the reason why God permitted Jerusalem to be destroyed, the temple to be destroyed by the Babylonians, was because when God's people forgot Genesis, they stopped honoring the sabbatical years and honoring the Sabbath. And they literally spent 70 years in the captivity to make up for all the Sabbaths and sabbatical years that they had desecrated. So for God, this is not a small deal. It's a very big deal. And what we are experiencing now with the forgetfulness of Genesis, the treating of it as if it were just a myth or a story, it's just a repeat of what has happened before in our history. And we need to understand that we've got to go back and take God at his word in Genesis as all the fathers and doctors of the church did. So we're storing up some mistakes here. We're storing up our own neglect yes, of the Sabbath day. We are. Because, because for those that don't think that Genesis is history or that it is a story of creation, I would go out on a limb to say that they probably don't keep the Sabbath, keep Sunday holy. Exactly. And they're probably not going to Holy Mass. They're not practicing the faith. They're certainly not teaching create, creation here. So then, like the Israelites before us, then we're storing, we're storing, we're, we're storing up reparations, basically, that are going to have to be made. Yes, yes. And, and the, but the beautiful thing is when young people especially are told the truth and they're shown that sound natural science harmonizes perfectly with the sacred history of Genesis, that gives them the strong foundation that they need and they do not lose their faith like most of their peers who go into secular universities or even into Catholic universities and are bombarded with all this propaganda that convinces them that this evolution story is true and scientific and then that is used to justify every kind of liturgical deviation and every kind of moral deviation because they're told, look, everything's evolving and we have to uh, evolve the liturgy and the moral teaching of the church and the, uh, the theology of the church to adapt to this new stage of evolution that we've reached. And young people are not stupid. They, they know in their gut, if they can't articulate it, that this can't be right. And so most of them are leaving. But if they know the truth, that the sacred history of Genesis is the truth, the dogma of creation as it was handed down is the foundation of our faith, they are not gonna leave. They are gonna stay and they're gonna be strong, whether it's priests or religious or heads of holy Catholic families. The Hugh Owen of the Maximilian Kolbe Center um, something you, you said, I just talked about this today on the show, um, uh, a writer named Rod Dreher asked his Catholic readers to respond to the Pew Research Center's latest survey, which says only 35% of Catholics wish to pass the faith on, or think it's important to pass the faith on to their children. And the letters he got in response were exactly what I already knew, you probably knew, which is that the future of the church right now is in the youth. The youth are the ones that are attracted 
to the beauty and the transcendence of the, of the traditional liturgy. Yes. And pe people make the mistake that it was just a traditional Latin Mass. It's not the Mass. The Mass is beautiful, it's part of it, and yeah, we have to have it, but it's also the practice of sacred tradition. This guy's got his rosary in his hand. He prays it every day, probably prays it at night a couple times. Um, these are the practices of sacred tradition. When Lent comes up, we fast. We don't complain about it. We don't look for nuances and rules. We ask God for the grace. Okay, yeah, I'm, a, I'm, I'm over the age now. I can actually claim the age exemption. I could go like, ah, tap, tap, I'm tapping out. I'm eating steak on Fridays, man. I'm not doing Lent. But it is the practice of tradition that makes you, that it helps you understand and helps you um, internalize and make this, this transcendence part of our life. So that was a little tangent, but I actually do have a question for you. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, our Lord says, as it was in the days of Noah, if someone comes after them and call after our Lord and questions the flood, I had to explain to someone the other day, anti-Diluvian, post-Diluvian. They go like, why does that matter? I'm like, it, it's all that matters if you're studying archaeology and geology, pre-flood, after flood. If you deny that Noah's flood, that there was that there was not a flood, well then whoever wrote the story of Noah down, which was Moses, and whoever gave it to him, which is God, you're calling God a liar. You're saying that there is no truth then, because our Lord repeated it in in the Synoptic Gospels as it was in the days of Noah. Yes, absolutely, and um, it's incredible that most of our young people even in seminaries, are being told that Moses didn't write anything. And yet our Lord Jesus Christ said, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So they're being taught that our Lord Jesus Christ did not know what he was talking about and that he said something that wasn't true. Right. And how can this, I mean, how can, how can those who are entrusted with the education of youth do these kinds of things. But I want to point something else out. If you look in the four Holy Gospels, you will find so many times when the Pharisees, the lawyers, the scribes asked our Lord questions, usually to trip him up. How many times do they reference Genesis? This is an amazing question because I'll tell the audience the answer, and I was shocked when I made the investigation. The answer is zero times. Zero. Zero. No. Because the collective amnesia about Genesis affected the religious leaders of the time of Jesus. But Jesus answers from Genesis many times and he always treats Genesis as the sacred history the exact truth about what happened so when they ask him about divorce they don't reference Genesis they're referencing the law of Moses but our Lord answers them from Genesis he says in the beginning it was not so God created he says he created them from the beginning of creation in perfect harmony. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the collective amnesia about Genesis 
was in full swing when our Lord became man. And what did he do? He restored Genesis back to the fundamental position that it needs to have as the very foundation of his teaching on marriage. The devil believes in Genesis. The temptation coming up uh, on Ash Wednesday, we're going to hear in the gospel, and he took him up to a high mountain, uh, and, and uh, why don't you turn these stones into bread, and our Lord, where does he go? I mean, the devil knew the scripture, the, de the devil knew the story of creation. Absolutely, he knows that's the foundation of our faith, that's the first article of the creed, and that's why our Lord inspired St. Peter almost 2,000 years ago to warn us against the evolution revolution. Second Peter chapter three, he says, scoffers will come and they're gonna say, things have always been the same from the beginning of the universe. That is the premise of Rene Descartes and the so-called enlightenment philosophers, which gradually took over the thinking of the intellectual elite of the whole Western world. Unfortunately, by the 20th century, that included the overwhelming majority of Catholic intellectuals. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell because what God revealed is that the whole work of creation was supernatural and only when he was finished creating Adam, body and soul and Eve from Adam's side, he was done with creating new kinds of creatures because he created everything for us. And that means that the natural order, what we are living in now, only began when the whole work of creation was finished. And therefore, no matter how smart we are or think we are, no matter how wonderful our technology is, we cannot study what's going on now and extrapolate from that all the way back to the beginning right. to explain how everything came to be. And if we do, we will get the wrong answer every time. But today, most Catholic intellectuals believe the lie that St. Peter warned us about because they don't realize that that Enlightenment philosophy was insinuated into the very air that we breathe. So today, we're born into a world where everybody believes that that's true unless they really learn their faith and have a special grace from God to know the truth, which is no. Natural science is a wonderful thing, but it has limits. And you cannot discover the truth about how God created the world by studying what's going on now. You can only know that from God's revelation. That's a point that is made in Foundations Restored. Yes, it's a very central point. This is one of the biggest questions that people have, and I'm gonna to talk directly to those of you that are watching. This is one of the biggest questions, one of the biggest hang-ups that we have. Carl Sagan didn't invent it, but he's the most easily mocked. Billions and billions and billions of years. How do they know it's billions of years? Well, because the science tells us so. Okay, well, what part of the science tells us so? Well, there's carbon dating and this dating and this dating and we know from this and we know from that. That's just simply not true. That's a simplification that's actually wrong. It's not correct. And the simplification, and if you learn a little bit about the science, you'll learn that that dating, the way they date it, relies upon the, chemi the, the atomic makeup, basically, correct me if I'm wrong, the atomic makeup of lead as it is today. And then post-diluvian, anti-diluvian. We don't know what things were like before the flood. So 
give us a two-minute ex- explanation of why the time explanation of millions and billions of years is flawed. Why is it flawed? The, there are two parts to the answer. The first part is when scientists use what we call long half-life radiometric dating methods, let's say we have a rock and it's got some potassium in it and it's got some argon in it, and we know that it takes, let's just say, I don't remember the exact time, but it's, let's say it's 1.2 billion years for half of the potassium in the rock to turn into argon. Well, if we have this rock, it's got a certain amount of potassium, a certain amount of argon, we make the measurement, we say, based on the rate at which potassium decays into argon, this rock is a billion years old. It sounds like it's very, very solid. It's incredible. But it's not, because there were three assumptions that went into that calculation which were never explained. Number one, that we know the original condition in the rock. How do we know? We don't know how much potassium and argon was in the original material. Number two, we're assuming that the rate of decay of potassium to argon has remained the same for one billion years. That's a huge assumption because we know there are conditions that can accelerate the rate of decay. Number three, we're assuming that that material was a closed system for one billion years. No potassium came in or came out. No argon was taken in or taken out. That's another huge assumption. So the system is basically worthless because there's absolutely no way to verify any one of those three assumptions. But when we move to uh, the the carbon-14 dating method, for example, now we're dealing with carbon-14 turning back into nitrogen-14 when a plant or an animal or a human being dies. And that happens so quickly that after 50 to 100,000 years, there's not going to be one single atom of carbon-14 left in the remains of the plant, the animal, or the human being after they die. Now, Willard Libby got the Nobel Prize because he realized that all living things contain carbon and that he could take um, samples from artifacts that had a known historical pedigree, like wood from the tomb of a pharaoh in Egypt where we had some historical records that told us when the pharaoh lived. So he had an independent way of calibrating the test. And so carbon-14 has some reliability because you could take that piece of wood from the pharaoh's tomb, and then you have independent historical documentation that tells you, let's say, the pharaoh lived 3,000 years ago. And then you can compare your carbon-14 dating results with the historical documentation and check yourself, check your results. Now, we have had a team of scientists for 20 years collecting dinosaur bones from Texas to Alaska and even from other parts of the world. And we have sent dinosaur bones to world-class laboratories that have a machine called an accelerated mass spectrometer that can count the number of carbon-12 and carbon-14 atoms in a sample. Carbon-12 is a stable form of carbon. Carbon Carbon-14 is the radioactive isotope. In our bodies right now, we've got one trillion atoms of carbon-12 
for every single atom of carbon-14. But when we die, all that carbon-14 immediately starts turning back into nitrogen-14, and after 5,200,000 to years, there will not be one single atom of carbon-14. Therefore, if the evolution story were true, we would not find one single atom of carbon-14 in any dinosaur bone. And yet, we have proven five world-class labs found substantial amounts of carbon-14 in every single dinosaur bone we have ever submitted for analysis. And not only that, we have found in the remains of plants and animals throughout the fossil record, carbon-14 in the same amounts. All of this is showing that everything in the fossil record is thousands of years old. It's not millions of years old. And with regard to the dinosaurs, we have not only found carbon-14 in dinosaur remains, we have found red blood cells, soft tissue, intact proteins, intact strands of DNA, which has a half-life of 521 years in ideal laboratory conditions. So the more reliable method of radiometric dating is perfectly confirming the sacred history of Genesis. Now, just one last point. The average age of our dinosaur bones in radiocarbon years is 20 to 30,000 years. So right. some people will say, well, that doesn't line up with the traditional Bible chronology that the church always accepted. Oh, but it does. Because the Earth has a magnetic field. We've been measuring the strength of the magnetic field for 200 years, and it is decaying exponentially. What that means is, at the time of Noah's flood, that magnetic field was so strong that it would have been very difficult for cosmic rays to get into the atmosphere, collide with the nitrogen atoms, and turn them into carbon-14. So the 20 to 30,000 year ages that we get for the remains of dinosaurs who were buried in the floodwaters and sediments should be brought down to four to 5,000 years in perfect harmony with the sacred history of Genesis. That's an incredible story. And uh, again, if you watch Foundations Restored, you'll learn all of this and a lot more. Uh, we could get into the geology and uh, uh, the whole thing about Mount St. Helens, for example. If you want a modern example of how you can create strata of rock that looks like it's 100 billion years old or 100 million years old, yes. go to Mount St. Helens and you can do it in eight hours. Yes. Eight hours it can be done. But I want to move on. I, I've extended our interview just a little bit, if, if you have a couple yes, of minutes. Yes. I, I want to talk for a moment here with, uh, with Hugh Owen from the, the Cole Bay Center. I want to talk for a moment here about the work that's being done that you're doing and why isn't it being done from the pulpit? Why don't more priests talk about this? Is it lack of courage or is it lack of conviction or is it that they just don't know? They've never heard, they, they haven't heard this. They actually need to learn this like most of the rest of the world's population needs to learn. Well, there, there are a number of different parts to the answer. Okay. And one part of the answer is that unfortunately, even our wonderful priests who love the tradition of the church and who are trying to keep the faith as it was handed down, many of them have imbibed the notion that the literal interpretation of Genesis is a Protestant thing, that it's something that Protestant fundamentalists began to get worked up about at the end of the 19th century. 
And so they have a sort of an innate uh, resistance to taking Genesis as a literal historical account of how God created the world and what happened in the first period of human history. That is a major obstacle. Um, but what we found is, because we get testimonies from priests from all over the world, is that if they will take the time, say, to watch Foundations Restored, that innate love for the truth and for Holy Mother Church and for God will make it very easy for them to recognize that this is the truth. But that prejudice and that, that desire even to protect their people from Protestant errors is a major obstacle to fully embracing what is actually our patrimony. It's not something the Protestants got it from us, just like every other good thing that they have. That's one factor. And I would say that the other factor is every priest who proclaims the traditional teaching on creation is going to pay a high price for it. He's going to be persecuted, just like he's going to be persecuted for preaching the truth about contraception and any number of other things. Exactly. But he will do it if he's 100% certain that it's the truth. And that's the problem, because you might have many, many very good priests who are like 90% or 95% certain, but they haven't gotten to 100%. And so they're making a prudential judgment. Am I going to put my head on the, net, on the guillotine block again for this? Or do I need to be a little bit more certain that it's the truth? But what I would say is the priests that have fully embraced the traditional teaching, it is so rejuvenating to their priesthood that they're willing to suffer any kind of persecution because they see what it's done for their own priesthood, for their own spiritual life, and they want to give that to their people. And I want to go one more subject, and then we'll wrap it up here. Um, and this is one that you and I have actually talked about before, but we didn't do it on video, and that's this. The belief in evolution, in Darwinian evolution, which there aren't very many sci scientists that still hold the entire Darwin method now, or Dar Darwin model. You know, they're more with the, the Teilhard de Chardin model, theistic evolution, if you will, so it's popular, it's all the rage these days. But there is a serious problem in medicine and real sciences in using the evolutionary model of billions and billions and billions of years and not Genesis. Our scientists are actually going backwards. They're like, because they've eliminated the final cause, okay? When you eliminate the final cause, this is what the Chinese did, this is what the Muslims did after Muhammad. When the final cause gets eliminated, it's almost impossible for human society to progress because you've lost God, you've lost the Creator. So medical advancement, scientific advancement, if, as if we need any more, but if we did, is, isn't it being hampered by using the evolution non-genesis model? Yes, uh, we show in our publications and articles on our website that faith in evolution is the worst thing that ever happened to scientific and medical research. Let me just give you two quick examples. Dr. Jerry Coyne at the University of Chicago is one of the leading atheist evolutionist scientists in the whole world. I know of him. And in a recent book, Why Evolution is True, just published about 10 years ago, 
he argues that embryology is still a very strong proof that a one-celled organism turned into a human being through a natural process of evolution. What's his evidence? He points to the fact that every human being in the mother's womb has a transitory coat of hair. The technical name for it is lanugo. You can look it up. And Dr. Jerry Coyne, with his PhD and his genius IQ, which I'm sure he has, says there's no need for the baby to have this transitory coat of hair. It's 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit in there. The only explanation, he says, is that it's a holdover from that earlier stage of evolution when we were covered with hair and swinging from the trees. Now think about this for a moment. This guy has a PhD, I think, from Harvard. He's got a genius IQ, I'm sure of it. Why can he not be a good scientist? Because he's got his evolutionary blinders on. Any good scientist, like St. Albert the Great or Leonardo da Vinci, looking at the Lanugo, would never say it doesn't have a function now. Because they all knew that God created every kind of plant, animal, and human beings with a purpose for every single organ and function, every single organ and system in the body of that plant, animal, or human being. So what they would say is, I'm not smart enough yet to understand why this Lanugo is here, but I know it has a function. I'm going to continue to investigate till I discover what it is. Well, evolution destroys the proper working of the scientific mind. Because whenever the evolutionist finds something that he doesn't understand, he immediately says, oh, it must be a useless holdover from an earlier stage of, of evolution. The appendix, the tonsils, wisdom teeth, junk DNA, the list goes on and on and on. But it turns out that years before Dr. Jerry Coyne went into print with Why Evolution is True, any course in midwifery or obstetrics or embryology worth its salt was already teaching that the Lanugo hair keeps this vernix caseosa, which is like a yogurt-like substance, on the skin of the baby in the mother's womb to protect it from the amniotic fluid. And that's why if you've ever had the privilege of seeing a baby born at term, the baby comes into the world covered with something that looks like yogurt. That's the vernix caseosa. But it was the lanugo, the hair, that kept that yogurt-like substance on the skin and protected us in our mother's womb. So here you have this PhD with a genius IQ who cannot see what I can tell you five-year-olds in my audiences are able to figure out in one minute. So that is how evolution retards scientific and medical research. And when we go back to the true Catholic doctrine of creation, we're going to see a golden age of scientific and medical discovery. I believe we're already uh, we're at the dawn of a Catholic. We are. Of a dawning of a, a new Catholic golden age of literary works. Absolutely. Newpolity.com. The guys, the gentlemen that are writing their, their essays, they're, they're, they're of your mindset. Uh, but it's just good. It's good logical. It's yes. naturally based, logical, and it has a healthy respect 
for the handmade uh, for theology, right? Yes. Uh, which which we need. Uh, we're out of time, Hugh. Uh, Forty minutes always flies by. Um, safe travels. Thank You'll you. be visiting with our friends in Dusan tonight. Yes. Uh, they're listening right now. <laughs> so Rusty and Julie and all the Lamots and uh, all the uh, the Scarboroughs and all our friends there are, are in for a treat. What's your talk about tonight? It's uh, on creation-based science versus evolution-based scientism. Okay. <laughs> Will you be bringing uh, McDonald's man into this? Yes, sir. <laughs> Folks, if you haven't seen McDonald's, man, you must go to coldbaycenter.org. Um, I want you all to, to go to coldbaycenter.org and consider supporting their great work. You can do so by getting a copy of Foundations Restored. Again, use our website. Uh, we're one of their affiliates, crusadechannel.com forward slash Adam. And uh, Hugh, uh, you're a warrior, you're a crusader out there. Uh, you're doing this, and, and I'm sure sometimes you must think that Wow, what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Uh, but it's obvious that material gain is not, I mean, to me, because I know you now for five years, uh, that material gain is not uh, the primary driver here. Um, and so you're an inspiration to a lot of people, myself included, because you can look at you and you go like, well, he's got nice clothes. <laughs> he's able to travel from point A to point B. He's alive. He's fat. He's got 19 grandkids. Maybe there's something to this whole practice of us going back to Christendom. Uh, not, that doesn't mean we jettison electricity and phones. It means that we go back to living as Catholics, seek ye first the kingdom of God yes. and do that. And maybe just trust a little more. Matthew, uh, was it Matthew 16, 13? You don't see the birds of the air flying around yes. looking and waiting for their food because God in heaven is going to provide it. Why does this chosen creation think that he won't provide for us? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, I want to thank you as always. Ladies and gentlemen, that'll be conclude our Friday broadcast. Remember, all of these shows are available at crusadechannel.com. Have a safe and blessed remainder of the weekend. And as always, may God bless you and Mary keep you.